What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, John Sweeney, the investigative journalist and writer, discusses his new book, Killer in the Kremlin. As a journalist, John Sweeney is never far from the most perilous and murky stories of our times. His latest book is A Study of Vladimir Putin, His Rise and His Destructive Tyranny that has powered wars in locations such as Chechnya, Georgia, Syria and of course today in Ukraine. Our host today is Carl Miller, Research Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. Here's Carl with more. Hi there, everyone, and welcome. I'm joined, of course, by John Sweeney, uh, award-winning writer and reporter. Um, he spent much of 2022 in Ukraine. I'm sure so many of you have been following, as I have, all of the reporting that he's uh, he's been doing there. Uh, he worked as an investigative journalist for BBC Newsnight and Panorama for 17 years and is the author of 12 books, including the best-selling novel set in the war in Burma, Elephant Moon. And, of course, we're talking about his new book today, Killer in the Kremlin. Um, John, very warm welcome. Thanks so much for coming today. Cheers, Carl. It's um, a pleasure. The, the, my only caveat with this whole thing is I'm a bit thick, so I think for me it should be called Intelligence Halved. <laughs> well, welcome to this Intelligence Halved event with John Sweeney. Uh, <laughs> proceeding otherwise as planned. Um, John, um, let, let's let, let's be, let's begin um, about the book. I, I, I wanted to begin um, in a place where I, I, I think you, you know your reporting is never shirked from, and the book certainly doesn't. The kind of horrors of war. Um, the, it begins with the kind of horrors that you've seen. Um, there's a there's a line where you just say war crime after war crime after war crime. Um, could you, could you just take us through some of the things you've seen in 2022 in Ukraine? So it starts with this kind of column of heavy metal going towards Ukraine. And the Russians are saying, the Kremlin is saying, we're not going to invade, it's just uh, exercise. And it's strange and creepy. But I feel passionately that the West has kept on backing down from Putin. Putin trades in violence. And the West response is to say, well, let's see if we can live with this guy can we do a deal can we if we, if we back down then it'll it'll go away and this happens on repeat and i first called vladimir putin a war criminal 
when I saw evidence of Russian army war crimes in Chechnya 22 years ago. So for me, this is very, very personal. And I didn't want to run away. And I, that's why I flew to Kiev. I actually can't flew to Kiev on Valentine's Day. I've had some rough Valentine's days in my life. <laughs> and that was like, this was the worst. Uh, anyway, I, um, so the war starts. I can remember the evening of the war. I was invited to a party with supermodels. And when I got there, there were no supermodels. <laughs> of course there were. There were just journalists sort of gorging themselves on alcohol and chunks of cheese and saveloy. And we watched Joe Biden saying they've made the decision they're going to invade. And it was so bleak, this party, that I, I left and found a bar and I found some Ukrainians and I said, Biden said, it's going to happen. No, 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 it's not going to happen. And I could just, it was, it felt like being inside W.H. Auden's poem, September the 1st, 1939. It felt like being inside the, the, the gloom of George Orwell when he wrote about the midnight of the century, the Nazi Soviet pact. It felt like that. Then, um, day two, I get arrested as a Russian spy. I'm wearing this. By the way, this costs, you know, like there's no, I'm actually a kind of lapsed Catholic of Irish Catholic stock. So actually it's, I just bought it on a skiing holiday for three euros. Um, but what happened was it was cold and I'm bald. So I put it on my head and, um, Wearing it, I was filming everything um, for my Twitter stuff because I have Patreons and they want to see films, diaries, and I filmed the Ukrainian army because before it was fine, but suddenly the war had started and it changed. On day two, I was arrested as a Russian spy. Do I look like a Russian spy? Can't never <laughs> argue with a man with a loaded machine gun. <laughs> anyway, uh, the guy who arrested me is called Vladimchenko, and we've become great friends since. Um, if you're on Twitter, follow him. It's Broken Pixel UA, son of Ukraine, and he's a really seriously funny warrior poet. He's great, um, and he's a great friend of mine. And so I did a, a video that very night in which I said, rough old day. I took a drink like I'm doing right now. Thank God for alcohol. I explained I've been arrested as a Russian spy. They looked me over. They sent me to the um, SBU headquarters, Ukrainian intelligence, to check me out. At that particular moment, number one target is Zelensky's presidency. Number two is the SBU headquarters. And, and I'm there for an hour while they kind of like faff about checking me out. And I kind of wanted to say to them, I say, chaps, could you kind of hurry this up a bit? Because <laughs> I don't want to be fried tonight. Okay. But... You can never argue with military bureaucracy. It's just like a, it's like a parking ticket with men with machine guns. You know, you just got to say. I mean, we, we joke now, but but you must have genuinely thought that it was, you know, a cruise missile could have landed on your head at any point. It could, yeah. But it's it's worse if you're bald, um, because <laughs> like like. Uh, but at the same time, I'm kind of used to the risk, and there's a little part of me which is both insane and reckless, but also calculated. And, and I suspected that Putin didn't want to smash Kiev up because he wanted it to fall like a plum into his hand. And therefore, it was a runnable risk. And I did a video that very night, which said, I think, actually, weird, you know, electricity is still on, the, uh, the internet is still on, and I'm still here, although I've been arrested as a Russian spy. But, I think the person who's in trouble is not Zelensky. It's not even me. It's 
Vladimir Putin because he's not sold this war to his people. And I said that on day two and I got a million views. So that was my, my, my thing. But then, um, um, you know, the war happened. I was there on my own. I wasn't working for an organization. I um, started, started up on Patreon and it really worked. But I didn't have a flat jacket or a helmet because I didn't, part of me didn't think the war would happen. And uh, eventually I, I, I got both. And then um, when the Russian army left, I went to Butcher on very early April. And we got there where the dead were still left um, in people's gardens. And we found um, um, two Ukrainian civilians. One had been shot in the back of the head and the other in the forehead, a huge hole there. And that's, they're both war crimes, bang, bang. And um, I think that the guy who'd been shot in the, in the face was the most obscene thing I've ever seen or one of the most obscene things. And then we went um, a day or two later to Borodanka. And what happened there was this was a town on the road to Kiev, north of Bucha. And the Russian Air Force had put, punched a missile into an apartment block and they'd killed 40 people stone dead in that second. And everything in the apartments was blasted onto this children's playground. So you picked up bits of other people's lives. I love you. Can you order some fresh milk? Here's my diploma for speaking English well, this kind of stuff. But on the way there, Carl, I mean, we, we passed car after car after car, which had got Jetty, Russian for children, scribbles in, you know, uh, in paints on the cars that have been shot up. So imagine um, the Russians attack Essex and everybody who lives in South End on the Sea is on the run and they put kids on the, on, in paint on their cars and they're shot up on the A13. That's what it felt like. And, 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 and then you know, the numbers come out. Um, in Butcher, there was a mass grave. There was a kind of a claw, somebody's hand, blue, gray, green, plastic bags, dozens and dozens of bodies. Now, in war, most of the time, people die by artillery, shrapnel. Um, I've got a little, let me show you. This is what I picked up from the Kiev TV tower um, early on. Can you see? So, what happens is when a missile comes in, it smashes. And then and explodes, and then you get stuff like this scatters. It's boiling hot. It's moving at 900 miles an hour. And when it lands, by the way, it tinkles in a slightly weird sound. But this stuff, if, if it hits you, you're dead. And there was something pitiless about this. But what was strange about what happened in Butcher is that normally in war, something like seven out of 10 people are killed by shrapnel. In Butcher, seven out of 10 people were killed by bullets. That's execution. And the, the Cadaverites, these are these um, Chechen, uh, my uh, Chechen friends who detest Ramzan Kadarov, who's a kind of Chechen Quisling. They say there's no question in their mind that, that he's a Quisling. His people, the, the Cadaverites, they're, they're cold-blooded killers. And, and there's a problem in that with my Ukrainian friends, they say there's an existentialist problem with Russia itself. And I 
like to challenge that, and I like to say, no, that's not true. Um, Russia's better than that. But at the same time, you see this stuff, and it, make, it makes me doubt my own, my own argument. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. In fact, actually, John, it was, it was exactly this point, actually, that tract, that, that specific argument I was, I was going to read, read to you next. So it, it's towards the end of the book, but, but to me, it was, it was kind of giving your, your, your rationale for writing it. It says, nearly all my Ukrainian friends whom I adore believe there is something preternaturally wrong with Russia and the Russian soul, that Putin is just one monster among many from the swamp to the east. With love and respect, I don't agree with them. This is Vladimir Putin's war. Yes. Um, by the way, I've, I've argued that inside the camp of the Ukrainian Volunteer Corps, surrounded, and, and Vlad invited me, uh, the guys, and mm. so everybody's uh, like, I'm compl- but it's a democracy and it's a democratic army. And, and what I said was that there are, and, and as Zelensky, as Zelensky had a press conference, by the way, super cool, in a... Where do you hold a press conference if you're a number one target of Russian missiles? You hold it in the <laughs> tube station. And you hold it in the deepest tube station in the whole of Kiev. So imagine, like, I think it, whatever it is, Hampstead. So imagine, like... And then, what, I mean, one of the most remarkable press conferences, surely, in the history of the 21st century. It was, well, and the 20... I mean, I've been and around for a very... I've been a reporter for 40 years plus. And the only other thing which, which touched it for drama was going to performance um, produced by Susan Sontag and waiting for Godot in Sarajevo, in Serbo-Croat, Bosnian, in Sarajevo, while we're being shelled. And that was, that's the best play I've ever been to. Um, even though I didn't, under, I, you didn't, I didn't understand a word, you understood everything. Um, and then the press conference. At the press conference, I asked Zelensky, remember, by the way, I'm working for the Jewish Chronicle. And when the Jewish Chronicle found me up, they say, um, everybody else has fucked off. Can you, um, can you uh, write for us? I said, I'm not Jewish. I'm lapsed Catholic and I'm a bad Catholic. I'm not even, you know, anyway. And they said, we don't care. There's no one else. <laughs> <laughs> so, and every time I wrote for the Jewish Chronicle, I put in a Muslim. Uh, there was a, a fighting imam and there was a fighting Chechens. Just for a bit of balance, uh, every word went in. It was lovely. But anyway, John Sweeney, Jewish Chronicle, which sounds absurd, but anyway, never mind. And um, President Zelensky, what's your message to the Russian opposition? The kids in Moscow and St. Petersburg who are protesting against the war and get their teeth kicked in by the police. This guy, there was lots of people, but one of them was a, a man who brought a copy of War and Peace to the Kiev Monument in, in Red Square when he was arrested, and Alexei Navalny. And Zelensky, who's um, he's kind of like Rowan Atkinson in terms of... Um, He's a tremendous comedic actor like Rowan Atkinson. And then suddenly he's become like Churchill and, and his transformation is extraordinary and beautiful. But he, he dodges the um, Navalny bullet cleverly and he says, these people are very great, very brave and we're grateful to them. Words are as powerful as nuclear bombs. So I, so I think Zelensky gets it. Remember Zelensky before the war? Was a moderate was somebody who wanted to kind of live with, live with Vladimir Putin and actually sent a message: this isn't going to happen. So consistently that it could almost be foolish. So since the war has started, he's be, 
behaved so bravely that I don't care about his mistakes before the war, and that goes for nearly all the Ukrainians. Um, but I do hope, and we're thinking about Russia after Putin, that what they have to do is find somebody like Willy Brandt, who has the moral courage, who went to the Warsaw Ghetto and he knelt and he 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 reflected Germany's shame for what Germany did during the Second World War. And the Russians need to find a Willy Brandt and they need to say sorry and they need to help Ukraine stick itself back together again. And And we shouldn't ever... Um, reduce sanctions and our pressure on Russia until Russia chooses that kind of future. But for the moment, it's locked in some some weird Eurasianist, neo-Stalinist, neo-fascist past, which is hideous beyond belief. Well, John, let, let's focus on Putin because I, I guess there are these two threads, aren't there? At least, at least to my reading throughout your book. You know, firstly, trying to understand what Putin is like as a as a man and how he sees the world and why he's turned out the way that he has and why he makes a decision that he has. Um, but then also why we have to care so much about Putin as a man, you know, and this kind of the second tragedy that that he he's kind of been thrown into position of such power and influence over all of our lives, seeming so far away. So so let, let let's deal with both of those. Um there's the, the, the kind of chronological arc, I guess, you know, a kind of early childhood, kind of athletic scholarship at university, early KGB postings. Um, what of that is, it, it, it strikes you as being the kind of first or, or most important kind of early punctuation point or kind of early formative experience for Putin? Is it, is it, is it that, you know, I've, I found this very striking that he he hadn't himself personally experienced any of the main reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed. Yes. That seemed to me an extremely important important part of his of his formation. So Putin's on record as saying that the um the falling apart of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the twentieth century. Come on. Does it really, really match the First World War? Um, which caused the Second World War, which caused the Holocaust? Those three are less tragic than the fall of the Soviet Union, which started out essentially as a Stalinist sort of a Stalinist fascist thing, which kind of slowly degenerated into a kind of alcoholic senility under Brezhnev and then and then Andropov was sober, but but nevertheless. It was a kind of dreadful stuff. Now, what happened was the three things that killed the Soviet Union, Putin was was absent without leave or was, wasn't there. The three things that killed the Soviet Union, one was the war in Afghanistan. Putin didn't go. Number two was Chernobyl. Putin didn't go. And number three was the failure of the Soviet economy to keep pace with Western growth, economic growth, which is a good thing, which means that we've lifted hundreds of millions and now billions of people out of poverty through a regulated free market. And alongside that, through democracy and the rule of law, which you need absolutely to police the free market. Now, obviously, we make mistakes, but Putin never understood why the country he loved killed itself. We didn't kill it, it killed itself. So he never got that. 
what he got was a kind of deep romantic attachment to the Soviet Union, which which essentially had, you know, communist rhetoric, but you strip that aside from pretty early on, from about 1925 onwards, when Stalin gets hold of the machinery, it becomes, I think, more, to understand it better, it becomes a kind of, it becomes Russian nationalism, Russian fascism, Russian imperialism with a, with a shiny red paint job. But it's still part of that. Although Stalin was originally Georgian, he became a kind of Russian nationalist, turbocharged. And that was the, the, the real dominant thing. And the thing that's holding it together is the secret police. To begin with, it's called the Cheka, lots of alphabets, um, the three letters they call it, the GPU, the OGTU, the NKVD, um, KGB best way of understanding it. And Putin is starts life as as a kind of gangster's, I'm going to say gangster's mole deliberately to piss him off. But um, he, he was, um, there's a friend of mine, Jim Fallon, who's professor of psychiatry, University of California. He, he makes a study of world leaders who end up like Putin. And he says the common thing, Pol Pot's an exception, he doesn't properly understand why. But virtually everybody else, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Putin, have been in some way sexually abused or abandoned by their parents or mother at a very early age. And he believes this is the case with, with Putin. I don't have a, a clear grip on exactly what happened, but that's what he believes. So Putin has got no friends, and then he joins this this mixed martial arts group, which is a mixture of karate and uh, the Russian, it's a Soviet thing called Sambo. Mixed martial arts is the best way of describing it. And the guy who runs it is a mafia bloke called Ulvyatsov. I mispronounce it, I'm sure. And this guy on his grave, I am dead, but the mafia is immortal. So the number one thing for, for Putin is gangsterism. Gangster gets him into university on athletic scholarship, and then he joins the KGB. And then the kind of what happens is the gangsters and the KGB they come together, and they what you have is a gangsterization of the secret police, or the secret policeization of the gangsters. And so what you've got in Russia under Putin is a hybrid state of an intelligence service slash the secret police slash the Gambino crime family. I mean, I th honestly, you can read my book, but the other thing you should always read or reread is uh, Bertolt Brecht's The Irresistible Rise of Arturo Yui to kind of understand this stuff. And what drives me nuts, Carl, is when people like Schultz, possibly down the track, Rishi Sunak, if he becomes prime minister, will say, well, let's see if we can, we can do a deal. And it's like doing a deal with Hitler or the Gambinos or Al Capone. You can't do a deal with these people. You've just got to stop them. I mean, I, I think it's worth noting for the audience at this point that, that John, kind of, the, the, the issues you're raising now, I'm sure ones we're going to touch on, um, journalists have, have been literally killed for investigating these exact topics, haven't they? You know, as well as dissidents, you know, Alex Politskaya and Boris Nemtsov and Boris Berezovsky, many of whom... You, you knew or had met. Um, 
you know, all of them, a, a long line of people that have now died in mysterious circumstances. Um, has this always been the way that Putin has dealt with external criticism or kind of, I guess, investigatory pressure? Yes. So actually, um, the reporter from Germany asked me, how many people do you think he's killed? And I actually haven't put it in in this bit, but I'll, I'll uh, for the um, the next edition, I'll run through some numbers. So what happens very early on is in September 99, there's the Moscow apartment bombs. Basically, Putin's got, he's an insipid secret policeman, a rather creepy one, and his poll ratings are 2%. Yeltsin has given him, basically, he's made him his heir apparent, but people are saying, who the fuck are you? You know, you're nobody. And then Chechen terrorists blow up Moscow. 300 uh, people are killed in Moscow and some cities in southern Russia. Putin blames Chechen terrorists and said, we're going to wipe them out on the bog. We're going to get them. And this tough talking, it makes him enormously popular overnight. And he kind of captures the spirit of Russian ethno-nationalism and turbocharges it through this hate speech against the, the Chechen terrorist enemy. And the evidence is overwhelming, I said out of my book, that the Moscow apartment bombs was a black operation by the KGB. No question. And then everybody who starts asking questions with the same kind of, I don't give a fuck that I have, gets poisoned or gets shot. Uh, in particular, there's a guy who I never met, but I, I love him from beyond the grave. There's a guy called Yoro Shaka Chicken. He was investigating the Moscow apartment bombs. He drinks tea. His hair starts to fall out. His skin starts to flake. And he, um, his girlfriend, he dies. And his girlfriend visits him in the morgue. And she can't find him. But there's an old grandma who looks like her grandma. And she feels sorrow for this, this old lady who looks like uh, her grandma. And she goes to the morgue. Um, guy and says, I can't find Yuri, he's not here. And the more guy says, over there. And it was the grandma, i.e. that Yuri Chicken's lover couldn't identify him because the poison had changed him completely and utterly, so he was unrecognisable to his own lover. My friend, Professor Norman Dombey, who's um, with Marina Litvinenko's expert witness at the Long delayed inquiry into the poisoning of Libanenko is a kind of Sherlock Holmes. Dombey is super clever. To tease him, I'm, I'm always provocative. I said, do you know anything about theoretical physics? A little bit. <laughs> do you pass any exams? I passed a few. Where do you get a degree? Oxford. They give them away there. And he goes, <laughs> and irritated, irritable. He goes, and I did my doctorate. <laughs> at Caltech, where my supervisor was Murray Gell-Mann, who won the Nobel Prize for inventing the clock. So that <laughs> shut me up. And then, then by the way, Norman opened a can of Spitfire beer. Uh, like it was 12.30, he was drinking before I was. Terrible. But Norman, who Sherlock Holmes, uh, he can tell you that the polonium-210 that killed Litvinenko was cooked up, was baked, in the Sarov nuclear reactor um, in the city of Avangard. I might have got that, but, but all these names sound like something out of the Lord of the Rings. You know, like, but, uh, but Norman's on it, completely on it. He 
his working hypothesis is that the Russian secret state wouldn't have used polonium-210 first on Litvinenko without trying it out on others here. And so he believes that Shaka Chicken was poisoned with 210, polonium-210, as were the Russian gangster who knew the dirt about Putin, um, um, Roman Sepov, as was um, um, a Chechen warrior called Lucha um, Ismailov, if memory serves. And those three were the guinea pigs before trying it out on Litvinenko. But the significance of all of this is that after Litvinenko, the British government kicked out four diplomats who were spies. Like, all that happens is that Putin gets the spy factory in Moscow to print out four more diplomatic passports. So this is a game where we are losing, and Litvinenko was a British citizen at this point, and there was a lot of polonium littered across London. We're losing people, our people, yeah. and, and Putin's playing with Monopoly bunny. And so what you get as well as war crime after war crime after war crime, I'll repeat, we're not standing up to him. And Schultz is not standing up to him, and I'm worried about Rishi Sunak if he gets it. Um, I'm worried about, uh, about the West revolve to stand up to this serial killer. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening, and early access to. Currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. John, earlier you said that, you know, you, like like other war correspondents, have this kind of, you know, on the one side, a kind of risk-taking kind of appetite, but on another, a kind of calculation and a Kind of ability to try and try and manage risks. Um, how have you managed over your career to manage the risk of reporting on Putin? I mean, it seems to me. I mean, the book you, you you've written. I mean, explicitly it says at parts two to piss him off. I mean, you 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 doorstepped him in Russia, face to face. How have you tried to, especially given this kind of long phalanx of illustrious colleagues of yours who who have literally died as a result of of of, of trying to report, how have you managed to to, to, to kind of uh, keep yourself safe or, or, or try and navigate around the threats that, 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 that are inherent in this whole area? So you're most dangerous if you're Russian or speak Russian completely fluently, and I don't. So that I'm trading in English or I'm dealing with English. So although I'm one of the more, more I would say I'm in the top 10 of the most annoying journalists uh, in the English language, I'm not in the Russian language. And at the moment, my book hasn't been translated into Russian. I would like that to happen. But um, that's number one. So that lowers the risk. Secondly, I'm based in London. And so what happened was that I would go over there, do a film for Panorama or Newsnight, but actually always Panorama, and then come back to London. Then the film would go out. So that, so that the, miss, the risk was, is mitigated. Um, you know, listen, I pour my own drink 
I pull my own teeth. <laughs> All right, well, we're about to go to the audience, um, uh, and and I can already see the questions um, pouring in. And do get writing, everyone, if you have any more. But but before we do, um, John, let, let's just kind of fl- flash forward for a second, just to um, the state now. And I guess the two big questions that everyone is asking: number one, um, is Putin well? I know you you, you there's parts of the book we talk about like roid rage and 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 kind of Putin's actual state of health. And secondly, is he still in control? I know you use this kind of idea of kind of Wizard of Oz that the kind of maybe some of the kind of marionette strings have been taken away from him since the invasion. The Kremlin doesn't tolerate a loser. Um, what what do you think right now is the is the kind of state of play, both in terms of Putin's health and and whether he still is really calling the shots? So in terms of the health, it's very difficult to um, to get a proper fix on it. There's a simple reason for that. There's all the people who were good in Russia who do, do my kind of job, they've either been poisoned or shot or had to flee or they're in jail. So when people say, well, why don't you know? Well, because everybody who tries to find out gets killed or has to go or gets locked up. But when I met him in 2014, I de- doorstepped him um, after the shooting down of MH17. His face... He had Botox, so it was weird and plasticky, but his, the structure of his face was, he looked like a space alien or, um, or a weasel. Now he looks like a hamster. His cheeks stuffed with straw. Uh, straw. And my friend, Ashley Grossman, I said, would you bet a fiver that he's been overdoing it on the steroids, some kind of steroid abuse? And Ashley goes, no, 50 quid. Uh, 50 quid on mm. some kind of um, 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 cancer of the um, lymphatic system. That's Ashley's take. And Ashley's a very, very, you know, he's a professor of neuroendocrinology at Oxford. Um, he really is intelligence cubed. Well, I'm intelligence <laughs> half. Um, so he thinks that, however, the, um, the I've forgotten the name of the guy who runs Britain's military these days. He's the, the, the first sea lord or whatever. Um, but he, they said, the way we look at that, uh, look at it, is that we think Putin's in there for the long game. Um, there's consistency, so obviously the British, they're not buying Putin's ill. All I know is that when I met him, he looked like a weasel, and now he looks like a hamster. And my friend Ashley Grossman, professor of medicine at Oxford, thinks that indicates steroid abuse. Mm. There's a bit of example from history. Um, JFK had um, Addison's disease, and you you treated it with steroids. It was early early days of steroid treatment, and they overdosed him. He looked like a hamster, and he was erratic, and he helped generate the Bay of Pigs crisis. So you can actually think of like two great crises: the one now and the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missiles crisis could both be roid rage. We'll see. I think Putin's Putin's much weaker than everybody thinks he is. For example, he still doesn't call it a war. It's a special military operation. He's not calling for universal conscription because he's afraid to call kids in, who live in Moscow and St. Petersburg because their mums and dads will hit the street. Navalny is still alive. Why? Navalny is incredibly rude about Putin. Why is Navalny still alive? Because Putin is afraid to have him killed, because if he has him killed, 
people will go out in the streets to protest. So Putin's weaker, and I think his control is weaker too. Well, actually, that nicely brings us on to a number of these questions, which are, are all just kind of a synopsize or pricey. Um, John, what's the end game? How, how does Putin leave power? Well, I kind of, my, I don't want to give the ending of my book. Well, I'll give the ending away. Um, the, the idea, so it's possible that a general comes back from the army, accused of cowardice or whatever, and just pops in with his revolver. That's always a possibility because the Russian generals are risking, and, and there are three problems for the Russian army. Number one is morale. They don't have a good reason to fight the war. Ukrainians are defending their homes. Number two, the Russian logistics are dreadful, and the recent arrival of the American long-range HIMARS rocket artillery systems is killing all the Russian ammo dumps. Got a major problem with logistics. Number three, bad leadership. Bad in the sense of incompetent, bad in the sense of evil. Putin all the, the way down. So I think the army's in trouble. The Russian army's in trouble, and this autumn through the winter into the spring, so long as the West stands by our Ukrainian heroic friends, then I think the Russian army's in trouble. And if they're in trouble, then Putin's in trouble too. Where it becomes scary is that, that he, you know, the talk of nuclear escalation will go up and we've got to see through his bluff. That's my take. Um, and I'm, anxious that I think there are far too many people in the West who haven't been listening, haven't been understanding the nature of this guy. Once again, the Chinese are watching. If Putin wins, then the Chinese will look at the West and see that we prefer comfort over victory. Over um, And therefore, I think that if we allow Putin to get away with what he's done in Ukraine, then the Chinese will try and gobble up Taiwan. So the world becomes a more dangerous place by appeasement, not a safer place. Um, so my take is the best thing to do is to give the Ukrainians the heavy metal they need, that that will cause the Russian army to be defeated. And then Russia looks at Putin and says, you're a loser. And they do to Putin what they did to Tsar Nicholas II. And the quicker they can do that, the better. Number two, um, Putin has surgery for whatever's wrong with him, and a doctor somehow makes it so he doesn't wake up. I would imagine that if I'm the CIA, I'd be saying to all of the Kremlin's doctors, you can live in Beverly Hills forever. Um, so that's number two. Number three, this is my favorite outcome, that actually he has been overdosing and abusing steroids. And he's got some kind of cancer, as Ashley thinks, of the um, cancer of the lymphatic system. And that Putin may die because he's got cancer, because he's ended up poisoning himself. This is an ending befitting of Shakespeare. Um, thank you for that, John. Um, there's there's a question here. Um, from whom? And I hear that, from who's it from? Uh, the, 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 this, is, the, this is an anonymous question. Okay, right then, okay, uh, okay. MI6, fuck off. <laughs> Um, and uh, it, it's one that it's one I certainly hear uh, quite a lot, which is how do you respond to the idea that this isn't to do with Putin? This is simply kind of NATO expanding up to the border. You know, there's, there is this consistent argument, isn't there, in the West that NATO expansionism is, if not 
the kind of deterministic factor than at least a key driver in 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 this kind of you know strategic decision or calculus that Russia's made. Well, is it, so so okay. So um, who set the borders? I mean, wh- wh- where's our timeline start? So you could say that um, on September the first. Uh, or whenever it was, I've forgotten the date of the Nazi Soviet pact. Maybe it was um, August 30th or something like that. But but actually, the borders were created by Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And these are the borders that um, Russian imperialists, Russian fascism like. I mean, is that going to stand? I don't think so. I think nation states have a right to join a defensive military alliance, which is what all that NATO is. NATO hasn't, I mean leaving Iraq aside, um, NATO has not done, and then there's the question of Kosovo, but I think that's minor, and I was there, and I saw the evidence of Milosevic's mass killings of the Kosovo Albanians. But essentially, I think it's perfectly fair for the the Balts, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, and the Latvians to join NATO because they want to, because they didn't like what happened in 1939. If you go to um, Lithuania, um, Vilnius, there's the KGB museum, which is the old KGB headquarters in the main street in Vilnius. And um, it's, it's one of the ghastliest museums I've ever been to. So I would invite your anonymous questioner to to go into that thing and and examine um, what Soviet imperialism, Soviet slash Russian imperialism, did to those places, and why they they get it. Why are they so so incredibly supportive um, of of the Ukrainian struggle? Because they know what it's like. They know what it's like to fight. Um, so I have no time for that, for that question at all. I, I, the other thing is, you know, like I like speaking my mind. I'm sure the anonymous questioner does. You go to Russia, you switch that off, you hold your tongue. So which, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of democracy, free speech and the rule of law or, or Vladimir Putin's killing machine? We need to make up our minds about this. Well, let's go to Tom now. Now a named uh, questioner, so Tom. Tom from Brighton. Um, Tom, and by he, the way, the other, he's, he's the only person called Tom in Brighton. Eh? <laughs> so, so Tom. Tom wants to bring you back, John, to the the kind of networks of power in Russia now, and he says, um, you know, what about the oligarchs? You know, do they have any power left, or are they just minding the money? I I thought it was no, notable that that you saw the kind of threat to come from the streets. You know, to come. Back to kind of organic, like political protests, really, rather than so the oligarchs kind of organising. No, so, so I think the oligarchs. So Abramovich, Abramovich and Deripaska, and there are other sharks. I mean, these people are not. You know, you'd not want to juice any of them to your mother, um, and sort of say, "Oh, can I bring back Oleg Deripaska for tea?" It's not that kind of person. So they have now seen Vladimir Putin pretty much destroy their life's work for the last 30 years. Um, they can no longer park their yachts in Saint-Tropez, send their spawn to Eton or Winchester or Eden Harrow. They can't do that. 
And they're intensely angry with Vladimir Putin because his blinkered, unreal vision on the world has led to this catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for the world, for Ukraine, but also for Russia and for Vladimir Putin. So I think that actually the, the fourth case is that the oligarchs could try and get rid of him, and they've got a lot of a lot of money. So they hate what Putin's done, and that is another possibility. The, the Western intelligence agencies are mired in a kind of legal um, cat's cradle, where they they're more like libraries. The, I mean, the, James Bond is a fantasy. Even the Carré is over the top. But the idea that MI6 or the CIA might actually do something against Putin, that's just silly. They collect information, but they don't do much these days. The oligarchs can and do. So I think it's 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 possible an angry oligarch could could get him knocked off. Fingers crossed. Katie from Hammersmith. Um, and, and this touches on uh, an area we, we haven't actually spoken too much about, which is the kind of like tendrils of Russian influence into British politics and across Europe. Um, what should we have done differently, Katie asks, after, after Salisbury? And, and I'll, I'll kind of add on to that. Why didn't we do? Why didn't we act differently? Why didn't we stand up to Putin then? Well, so my view is that the uh, MI6, the Foreign Office, Tony Blair, knew that September 99 was a black flag operation. They knew that. Um, they read the papers. They would have read my own piece in The Observer in March 2003 when I set out the evidence. And they looked the other way and they wanted Putin to be Mr. Nice, and he wasn't. Um, 2006, the poisoning with polonium suitem, they waited like whatever it was, eight years before there was a public inquiry. And that was after the shooting down of MH17. So 2014 is a big moment. Um, I don't do the right thing then. Salisbury poisonings. I mean, come on, folks. Oh, okay, the Russian position is that two Russian sports nutritionists want to see the 123-metre-tall Salisbury Cathedral. I actually... Uh, weirdly, uh, a friend of a friend's son's father is the dean of Salisbury Cathedral, and I managed to climb up Salisbury Cathedral. It took me about half a day because it's really – I've actually been <laughs> inside the fucking spire. <laughs> and, like, and while I was there, suddenly I was going on about – so the GRU, you know, silly – they never – boing, and the, uh, uh, the video is up there online – of the bells going, and boy, can you hear it? I felt, you know, never mind the um, hunchback at Notre Dame. Um, uh, but what we did was we kicked out a hundred and um, we kicked out like twenty dips diplomats, and then Europe and the Americans kicked out another hundred or so. And Bill Browder says, "So what? They just print another hundred and twenty passports. Doesn't matter." Immediately after that happens, Boris Johnson goes to a NATO meeting in Brussels. Then he flies, um, he ends up in Perugia, um, Perugia Airport, goes to the Lebedev's Palazzo Terranova. So the danger is the old man, Alexander Lebedev, who was a KGB spy in London from 88 to 92. 
The KGB is like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. What is your, this is from James now, John. Um, What's, you know, what's on your like kind of risk map in terms of ways out for Putin? Is it Trump being re-elected? I can't see Trump being re-elected because I think he's too mired in filth. Probably DeSantis could make it, but DeSantis is good on Ukraine. I'm, I'm, I'm having less nightmares about Trump, um, which is sweet. Um, so I think that the, 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 the serious danger is that Western politicians are used to trading and dealing and compromising, and that's kind of in their DNA. And we're dealing with, uh, with Russian fascism, um, by the way, Putin didn't used to be quite as fascistic as he is now. So he's, there's something, uh, there's something around about the, the, the start of COVID where he, he goes into a darker place. So when I met him in 2014, he was subtle and sensitive enough to say, Oh, here's an irritating prick from the BBC panorama show. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, Treat him as if I'm a democratic president, and which he was very good at. It sounds like he's very good, good at kind extremely of good smothering you know, the question. Very, you know, well done, president. Like he gave a long and boring and fundamentally absolutely dishonest answer, but he gave me an answer, so I couldn't say he didn't answer me. Um, and that guy has changed. so he's become more nationalistic. It may be because he thinks he's dying, in which case. Uh, by the way, he may be wrong about thinking he's dying, but if he thinks he's dying, then he's got to move quickly because he's run out of road. But but I I feel that the um, the best way of ending this is to give the Ukrainians the heavy metal, so that Putin's war has failed, and then the Russian people, the oligarchs, some of the secret policemen around him think. This guy is useless. Let's get rid of him. And the moment that sets in, then um, then that's not good news. When a Russian leader loses a war, their longevity is limited. Leone from London gets a last question, which is about Iran. So, so of course, um, Putin's just jetted over there. Will Will Putin be able to get Iran on side? And what what will be the impact if he does? And I guess a bit more broadly, will his famous kind of statecraft, you know, get him out of the mess that he's made for himself? No, um, Iran is, I mean, they're just mucking around, I think. Um, they're just being, the Americans don't like Putin, so um, we're friends. But, but essentially, if you're a clever Russian, you're an oligarch, you used to park your yacht in Saint-Tropez, you send your bastards to eat and you um, you park your money in the city of London, da, 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 da. And now you can fly all the way to Pyongyang. You can go to Eritrea, and you can go to Tehran. Um, and by the way, the nightclub scene in Tehran is not what it used to be. So, so I think that this is a pathetic attempt by Putin to make his disasters look less bad. And I don't think it's going to work. Um, and so I'm not very worried about that. I'm far more worried about the failure or if people like Schultz persist in trying to 
um, pressure and weaken Ukrainians for a short-term and unlovely and unjust peace that gives Putin more time in power, he'll come back, there will be more war, and the Chinese are watching. So, I, I mean, I'm, um, I see this as 39.45. We've got to defeat these people because they're evil. Full stop. Well, with that full stop is our full stop. So, um, everyone, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for all your brilliant questions. Thanks for being a brilliant audience. Thanks for not melting. Hopefully you haven't all melted. It's killer in the Kremlin. I really cannot commend this enough. It's an absolutely wonderful book. By the um, way, and John, th one other thing. It was horribly hot today, but it's horribly hot because we're spending far too much money on oil and gas. And, and the great threats to our society are Russian oil and gas and Saudi Arabian oil and gas and Iranian oil and gas. So if we can get off this addiction, it's better for the planet. I can, I can wander around the streets of London without melting and I'm not giving money to Vladimir Putin. So we've got, you know, for our own national so security and the well-being of the planet, we've got to get off the Russian gas and oil habit. Sorry to interrupt. Well, not at all. I can't think of a more powerful thought to end than, than walking around London and not melting, because that's really all I want to do. But John, thank you very much, both for, both for the book for today and all the heroic reporting that you've been doing from Ukraine. So thank you. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.